Well, I'm sure that gives you a good ex- uh, idea of what the Evangelical Alliance is about. Uh, hundreds of churches, hundreds of individuals, hundreds of organizations working together uh, as evangelical believers. And Steve Clifford has the job of heading up the EA. So let's welcome Steve as he comes to speak to us. Steve, that's that's got to be a big job, obviously, but uh, let's go back a little bit. You were born in Bradford. Uh, You grew up in a church-going family, Uh, very keen sportsman, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so how did you become a Christian? Was it fairly early in your Yeah, so I I was brought up in a family where there was faith in the family. My my father actually was was a vicar, um, but he died tragically killed by a drunk driver when I was five years old. Um, So by... By the time I was a teenager, there wasn't a lot of faith in my life. Um, And and halfway through my A-level years, I got a job working, what I thought was working in in just a kind of farm, but it turned out to be a conference center uh, where the farm was. And it was run by Christians, and they kind of dragged me along uh, one evening. And and, uh, I heard about Jesus, and I became a follower of Jesus that night. Fantastic. So... That, that commitment obviously turned you around, made, made a big difference. Yep. Tell us about you know, how big a difference and, and what you felt God was perhaps calling yeah, you to do I, at that I, stage. I, you know, you, you, I reflect back and my life is very different from the life that I thought I was going to live when I was a, as a 17-year-old. Uh, I, I very quickly finished my A-levels. I went to work in Scandinavia with Youth of the Mission. I came back and studied theology uh, in London um, and then very quickly actually was involved in kind of church leadership, planting churches, overseeing churches, uh, in, uh, mainly across the UK, but also different parts of Europe. Yeah. Uh, so you haven't always worked full-time in the Christian world, but you've worked in other contexts as well. Just tell us a little bit about Yeah, that. I worked as a salesman in London for a while. I taught, uh, I taught PE for a while uh, and, and then ran a unit for kids with behavioral issues. Uh, so I was, gonna, I, I was a teacher for quite a number of years, actually. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those things, actually, where I actually I, I could have seen myself kind of really developing a career uh, in education. I got promoted very quickly. Um, but the, the sense of God's calling me, on me in terms of the church uh, and the mission of the church was very central. And so when it came to a point when... Um, when actually the work I was doing in the church was getting more and more demanding, it was an easy decision really to say, I actually ought to be leaving my, the work I was doing in education and taking on work in the church on a full-time basis. Yeah. I know you've been involved in um, some fairly high-profile evangelistic missions and that sort of thing, uh, Soul in the City, Hope 08, um, March for Jesus, those yeah. sorts of things, yeah. um, helping to organize those and heading up committees and so on. Has there been a, a particularly... Um, significant time in your life where you think that that project was an amazing project to be involved oh, in? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of I look back. I mean, how, how many people can remember back into, back into the old days, you know, back into the 90s? Can, can people remember a thing called March for Jesus? Does people, does it, a few people marched for Jesus? Yeah, okay, that's, that's kind of encouraging. So 
I, I got to, to the privilege, actually, of kind of being involved as, as the international chairman of March for Jesus. You know, they are still marching for Jesus for d- today, different parts of the world. There are millions of people marching in Brazil for Jesus. It's incredible. Uh, but I, I think I, can, I look back to some of those events. You know, 70,000 people in Hyde Park standing there, just the church in all of its incredible diversity, but that sense of togetherness. Uh, you know, as one people and praying for our nation. I actually, I actually came to a conviction just, re- just recently that the, some of the stuff that we are seeing today in terms of the unity of God's people and the mission that the church is, we're seeing people coming to Christ. I think actually some of the prayers that we were praying then, we're seeing the fruit of that, those prayers today in, in the ch- church growth and church planting that's taking place in the UK. So those would be some of my high points. Yeah. So I was involved in a March for Jesus in 1997 in Sao Paulo in Brazil. One and a half million people on that march. Incredible. So that's your fault. And what do you feel that God has called you particularly to do in your time now? You're the general director of the EA. What, is there anything specific you feel God's uh, called you to do? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's a very long story, and I won't give you the long story as how I ended up in this role, but I, I, I come out of a church not dissimilar to yours. You know, I'm kind of a card-carrying, charismatic, uh, but called to this organization, um, which is about bringing together people like us, but together with people from right across the the spectrum of the evangelical Pentecostal um, traditions of the church. And um, I feel it's a fantastic privilege to be doing it, actually. Um, But it seems to me that we are living in a time of extraordinary fragmentation, um, you know, what, whether we look at what's happened in the UK in recent years with the vote in Scotland, the referendum, the referendum about leaving uh, the European Union, what we've seen in America in the, in the last few days, the fragmentation within society, I can't remember in my lifetime. It's interesting that at the same time, it seems to me that God is speaking to his church about coming together. So at a time of fragmentation, the people of God are finding each other for the mission of God. And the great prayer of Jesus, John 17, prayer of Jesus, it, you know, it's pivotal to my understanding of what we're called to do. You, see, you saw it on the video. That they might be one, praise Jesus. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He prays that they might be one, that the world might believe. It's, it's a, a unity for a purpose. And I, I'm convinced at this moment of time, the world needs to see a church with a, a unity. We, we look across the church and we see brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family together. And God has given us some family business to do, which is that to make Jesus known. Uh, and the world desperately needs to know Jesus. Well, it's a big job, so we need to pray for this man, but I'm going to hand over to Steve now to preach for us. Thank great. You. Well, it's great to be here. I've kind of been looking forward to hanging out with you guys. Uh, incidentally, if you, I, I left some leaflets uh, on the, uh, what would you call that, information desk over there, and um, I was about to put that on there, but then the kind of, I appreciate the kind of musician would feel desperately fearful at that moment. But... Uh, uh, if you want to find out some more and gain some of our resources, we've got some fantastic resources um, which will help you to pray, help you to be aware of what's going on, resources in terms of mission, in terms of advocacy. Grab hold of this little leaflet, fill it out, either give it to me before you leave or send it into our office and we'll make sure that you get hold of those resources. Okay. 
If you have your Bibles or your phones or your uh, tablets or whatever it might be, we're going to hang out in John chapter 4 together. You, I have read this passage. You know the, the, you know the John 4 p- passage, don't you? Uh, many of us will d- know it really well. I, I've read it. I've spoken on it loads of times. But actually, it is relatively recently that I, I suddenly saw something that I'd not seen before. And it's actually towards the end of that story where, where Jesus... Do you remember he's on his way from Judea to Galilee and uh, he's passing through Samaria and he has this extraordinary encounter with what we call the the Samaritan woman at the well. Do you you remember that that encounter that takes place there? And uh, as people have have reflected on on it over the years, they've reflected on the fact that Jesus, the rabbi, well, he's in, he's in the wrong place. What's he doing in Samaria? Often rabbis would avoid Samaria. Uh, he's at the wrong time of day because it's the noon. Uh, the sun's out. You know, what's he doing in the, in, the, in the middle of the day out in the sun? And he's having a conversation with, with a Samaritan woman who probably didn't have the best reputation in the town or in the village. And... Uh, the rabbi, what's he doing? What is Jesus doing having this conversation um, with this woman? And it's an extraordinary conversation. If you, uh, we're not going to read the whole thing, but uh, you might, if you, if you haven't read, read it recently, read it again. Extraordinary encounter between Jesus um, and this woman. But what I missed is what happens next. Because normally we get to about verse 26 and we stop. But verse 27 towards through to 42, we have really a series of conversations. We have a conversation between Jesus and his disciples, between Jesus a bit more than the woman, and Jesus and a few people from the Samaritan village. And uh, we're going to kind of talk a little bit about some of those conversations. And uh, I, I'm not going to read the whole passage through, but there are It seems to me in the passage there are three questions that change everything. And I want us to explore those three questions. First question is this. What's really important? What's really important? Now, this year, Anne and I, Anne being my wife, have celebrated one one of the big kind of wedding anniversaries. We've been married for 40 years. I think you should applaud Anne, actually. And um, we, during the course, we, d- we decided we were going to have a big, it was more like a season of celebration rather than a one-off celebration. And we did loads of things. It was, fa- it was great fun. But during the course of preparing for it, we, we just had, you know how you have, you have kind of bits of conversations about what, you know, we, uh, what had happened, how we came to get engaged, all that kind of thing. And it was during one of those conversations where there was a degree of tension in our conversation. You see, we both agreed where I had asked Anne to marry me. So, sorry, to marry her. No, asked her to marry me. That's, no, I get that right. Okay, so we all knew. You knew what I was meaning, didn't you? You got that. And it was actually in North London in a place which is called Sandpit Wood. You might say that's not in the most romantic of locations. I've, I'm, I'm, I tell you, I am really grateful 
That these days, for guys, it's blooming hard, isn't it? I mean, you, kind of, you start at the Eiffel Tower, and then you kind of work up from there. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, it's kind of Hawaii, or top of Everest, or bottom of the sea, you know. I mean? But for me, it was Sandpit Wood. Okay, so forgive me. And uh, we were, we'd, we'd, we'd had a bit of a kind of, uh, kind of seeking God time, and a bit of a break, and then we'd come back together again, and we'd, we'd just agreed that there was a future together between the two of us, you know. And, uh, and um, we... We were in the woods having a conversation about our future, what the future might look like. And I can remember it to this day. Anne stopped, and she said to me these words, Steve, you do realize you have never actually asked me to marry you. And she was right. Now, this is where the disagreement comes. My recollection of what took place then was this, that I fell to my knees I took her hands in mine, I looked in her eyes, and I said to her, Anne, I love you, will you marry me? Now, Anne's not here to give her side of the story, okay? But, let me just say, it wasn't quite, the words weren't quite as romantic as that, as far as she's recalled it. But, what we agree on, the problem was, I hadn't realized what was really important to Anne, I hadn't realized she needed me to ask the question of her. The dialogue that we're about to read together, we are discovering the thing that is really important for the woman at the well. We live our lives not simply based upon what we say is important, but we really deep down live our lives based upon what we deep down believe is important. You get, you get that? It's not just what we say, it's how we live that really, really counts. Okay, so, verse 27. Then his disciples return. I'm just gonna, let me just say this. We are going to discover three priorities as we read this particular passage. Three questions, but three priorities with, uh, that are explored here. And the first one is the priority of the woman. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. No one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way towards him. Woman's priority changes. That day she gets up and she knows what's involved in the day as far as she's concerned. It was, she's probably down the well every day. The fact that she went down at noon is probably indicative of the fact that she was going when the rest of the women of the village weren't there. She knew what her job was. The household needed some water. She's down at the well. She ends up with this conversation with Jesus. And in the light of the conversation with Jesus, look what she does. What does she do? She leaves the water jug behind. She's encountered Jesus. And because of the encounter with Jesus... Business can't simply go on as usual. 
something changes. I, I was struck by the, the kind of the vision. I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Mike. The vision that Mike had. I, I, I trust there's some truth in what I'm going to say. Mike had a vision of, of, of apples, golden apples falling to the ground. As the golden apples were fall to the ground, it was as if the Lord picked them up and put them into a bowl. But they weren't put in the bowl to stay in the bowl. They were put in the bowl because the Lord was going to take them and put them somewhere else. I just sensed actually coming today, and, 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 and there was a kind of confirmation in that, that actually for some of us tonight, there is, that the Lord might put his finger on a change of priorities for us. Perhaps we might put it like this, there are some water jugs to be left behind today. You see, this, this, woman, this, this woman wasn't a sorted woman. She, she hadn't got it all together, had she? There was lots of stuff in her life that needed to be put right. Sometimes we can live our lives on the basis, I'll just wait until I'm sorted. Or I'll I'll just wait until, well, I've got that particular new job, but I'll just wait until I've passed the exam, or I'll just wait until I've got that relationship in place. I'll just wait until my life is sorted. I find it personally encouraging that it seems to be that that God is less concerned about my life being sorted than my my life being available to him. And God's sorting me in the process of my obedience to him. Do you find that encouraging? Well, let's, let's just admit, let's take a little note there. You see, it seems to me that here we discover in this woman the first mass evangelist. What is, she goes off to a village, doesn't she? She goes to a village not having all the right theology by any means whatsoever. But she goes back to the village and she tells the village what's just happened to her. She's encountered this man, Jesus, and her message to them is very simple. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Come and see the person that told me everything I ever did. You know, of course, he didn't actually, did he? But to her, it was as if he told her everything that he ever did. You know, when... When I, at 17 years of age, became a follower of Jesus, I want you to know it wasn't the great worship in the the church that attracted me. It wasn't even the great community of faith that I was going to become part of. No, no, there was just something about Jesus that was so incredibly attractive. I fell in love with Jesus. And it's easy if you've been a Christian for a while and you've hung around church for a while just just to lose something of that falling, having fallen in love with Jesus stuff. Hey, it's Jesus that's central to our message. Come and meet a man who told me everything that I ever did. So we've seen the woman's priority. She's leaving water jugs behind. But then we get the disciples' priorities. Verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. 
He said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? I don't know if you notice that as you kind of work your way through the Gospels, so often with the disciples there's a food thing going on. Have you, have you kind of noticed that? So it's, almost like, it's almost like a, it's a male thing, isn't it? You know, it's kind of, I've got to look after my stomach. There's some irregular stuff about food and the disciples and their concern about the crowd's food or their food or Jesus' food. And, and this is, you know, they've gone into the town, they've found McDonald's, uh, they've got the takeaway, they've brought it back, and they're worried about Jesus. Now, it seems to me as I read the passage, it seems to me that actually... Jesus is almost too excited to eat. He's he's seen something's going on that Jesus couldn't care less about the McDonald's. It's very easy for us to get distracted on things that actually don't matter all that much. And we miss out on what's really important. It's easy for us to get anxious and fearful about the wrong kinds of things and miss the big picture. And the disciples were great at getting distracted. They they just had a kind of a habit of doing it. I mean, Peter is, is on the Mount of Transfiguration. God has just spoken. And Peter's response is, shall I build something? He's proposing a building project. They're on the way into Jerusalem. Two of the disciples are trying to do a deal with Jesus. Who can sit on the right hand? Who can sit on the left hand side? They're having an argument with each other as to who's the greatest. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is, is in agony in those moments. He's asking them to pray with him. And they're falling asleep. Hey, I find it kind of encouraging, actually, that these disciples are a bit like me. We haven't got it all together. We get distracted. We need to get back to what the big picture is. And here were the disciples. They were distracted. They were missing the big picture. They got the wrong priorities. What about Jesus' priorities? Well, verse 34, Jesus, it says this, My food, says Jesus, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says, I only do what I see my Father doing. This is the Father at work here. Jesus is so excited about what's going on. You know, I I have tried to live my life over, over the years on the basis of find out what God's doing and then get involved in it. This is, this is the father at the work and at work and this, this, this dynamic that is taking place is God and Jesus is so excited about what the father is doing. So the first question, what's really important? Second question, what do you see? Verse 35, Jesus says, Don't you have a saying, it's four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe under harvest. I tell you, said Jesus. It's a a command there. He says, open your eyes. 
In other words, what is it you see? When Jesus is op- opens his eyes, what does he see? Let, let, let me tell you what he sees. He sees a whole Samaritan village coming towards him. That's what he sees. See, the disciples are seeing food. Jesus is seeing a village. Jesus, this, is, this is the outworking of why he's come to the earth. This is why he's here. Jesus sees the village and he's ex- so excited about what's going on. What do you see, he says to his followers? What do you see? You know, it is very easy for us to miss and fail to see what God is doing. So easy to do it. It was a few years ago now, my, uh, I, I was, uh, my wife and I were at a leadership conference and, and we, we, we decided we'd go for a swim. And uh, we went down to the changing rooms. I went in the men's changing room. She went into the ladies' changing rooms, as you'd expect. I got into a conversation in the changing room. And then I, I arrived at the side of a swimming pool. And uh, you know those moments when you walk into a room and you just kind of know something's not quite right? Do you, do you, do you know that, that, that feeling? Well, it was one of those moments. There was Anne in the swimming pool with this guy swimming away from her at great pace. It turns out what happened is this. Anne had arrived at the side of a swimming pool and had seen me in, my, in the water with my back to her. So, seeking to surprise me, <laughs> she dived in, swam up behind me, and began to embrace me, starting at, at the shoulders and working her way down. Fortunately, by the time she got to the waist, she realized it wasn't me. In fact, it turns out it was this 19-year-old guy. It was about five foot six, I'm six foot four, about 11 stone, I'm 14 stone. In fact, the next day I got him to stand in the conference, I said, does he look anything like me? Now, you see, Anne knows me. She knows what I look like. But she couldn't see me in the water. She thought she'd seen me, but what she'd actually seen me wasn't me. It is very easy for us to think we see things clearly, but we actually don't see things clearly. You know what? We are bombarded in the society in which we live with messages messages which come at us from all kinds of shapes and sizes, probably of all generations, at all time, there's never been a time of so many messages that are coming at us. We're hit from messages from the newspapers, from TV, from Hollywood, from social media, all these messages are coming at us day in and day out, and the prevailing message, the prevailing story, the prevailing worldview is what we call a secular humanist, secular humanist story. A secular humanist story starts with a, with a prevailing presupposition, and the presupposition is this. There is no God. And all this is a result of an enormous cosmic accident. That's the messaging that's coming our way. It, it attacks us. It speaks to us day in and day out. We are bombarded with the society that around us is bombarded with those messages. Now, 
we come with another message, don't we? With another worldview. Our presupposition is that there is a God. There really is a God. And all this is not the result of a cosmic accident. It's the result of a creator who is working his purposes out in his creation. And despite the terrible stuff that happens as a result of the fall, it will ultimately result in his purposes being outworked. Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. That's where we're going. God is working towards that. You know what? The trouble is, our eyesight, our filter system gets affected by the world that we're in. We need God's help desperately to see things as they really are. What do you see? Is a key question. Do we see things as he sees it? And we need God's help in that. That's why Paul prays for the church in Ephesus and he prays it like this. He prays, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened or might be opened in order that you might know the hope which he called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul's praying that they will see things as they really are. He wants their eyes to be opened. We need our eyes to be opened, to see it for what it is, to see the world as God sees it. Not simply based upon Hollywood or the BBC or the IT, or ITV or social media that bombards us. No, help us to see it as it really is. Jesus then goes on in this conversation that's happening. He's having a conversation with his disciples. And the conversation goes on. And uh, he speaks to them about a harvest. How does he put it? He says, open your eyes. What do you see? I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe even unto harvest. Jesus sees the harvest. He sees the Samaritan village coming towards him, and he sees the harvest. And then there's a dialogue that goes on, and we weren't going to go into it, but verse 36 through to 38, Jesus is talking about sowing, and he's talking about reaping, and some who have sown beforehand. And now he says to them, you are reaping because of those that have sown. Let me put it this way. I sense at this moment of time in the United Kingdom, we are living in a time of harvest. It's not a time to prepare for harvest. This is a time of harvest. I, 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 you know, week in and week out, I am hearing stories of people coming to Christ. I think at a, at a level I have not known in all of my time of public ministry and leadership. People are coming to Christ. The harvest is there. They're coming to Christ in ones and twos, but they're also coming to Christ in the hundreds. It's a time of harvest. It's not just preparing for harvest. We, do keep, we need to keep reaping. We need to keep sowing, rather. But it's also a time for harvest. So, final question. We've asked the question, what's important? We've asked the question, what do you see? The final question, what's God doing? 
Well, in one sense, we've already, we've already kind of covered it. We've seen what God is doing in bringing these Samaritans to him. But just look what takes what this conversation. We, we listen in in the story to this conversation between the woman and the village. And uh, verse 40, Jesus is urged by the village to stay on. Some of them have already become believers in him. Uh, but others want to hear from him some more. And then in verse 42, we, we listen in this conversation between the woman and some of the rest of the village. And they put it like this. It's, she's, they say this, it's not just about what you said, speaking to the woman. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man is the saviour of the world. You see, suddenly the Samaritans have opened their eyes. Their eyes have been, their spiritual eyes have been opened and they see in Jesus not just a regular kind of rabbi, a Jewish rabbi at that. No, they see the saviour of the world. Something's happened. See, the, the good thing at this moment is this. All that's happening across the UK, yeah, yeah, God calls us to participate in the process. But the great news is this, that God is already at work in people's lives. God calls us to collaborate in what he is already doing. God is already speaking to people at the core of their being. And we get to participate in the mission of God in seeing people come, become followers of Jesus. Revelation has come to that village. The good news of the fact that the Savior of the world is amongst them. Thank God for that. You know, we, we can't prove people, argue people into relationship with God. But we can collaborate with the work of the Holy Spirit. Allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work and then for us to get alongside what the Holy Spirit is doing and see people respond to him. Isn't that what we're looking for? Isn't that what we want? See, I, I told you, didn't I, how I, um, how I uh, became a Christian when I was 17. You know, that evening in that chapel, what that guy said, I had heard it before, but that evening, deep, down at the core of my being, I knew it was true. As he spoke about the cross and the fact that Jesus had died for my sins. When he spoke about the fact that Jesus had not just stayed dead, but had come back to life, I knew it was true. And because it was true, everything had to change. This was, this is the saviour of the world's. So what's important? What do you see? What's God doing? Three questions. Key questions. I want us to pray before we go. In fact, I wonder if the the band could come up and uh, be ready to lead us in in a song of worship. But I'd love us to pray. And um, as I was kind of preparing for today, I felt like there was three things I would like to pray or by way of response. One is for all of us. 
that we might see things as they really are. Not based upon the distortion of the messages that come at us. So praying that God will help us to have eyes that see. But second thing, I I, I felt like there was a response for some of us, which was around, well, it's the water jokes, the priorities. Actually, I felt for some tonight there was a response of obedience. Maybe God's been putting his finger, speaking to you for ages or, you know, or the last few weeks or days about a particular issue or set of issues. And, and you just know there's a change of priorities coming your way. And God's asking you to leave the water jugs behind. To be available, maybe as the apple is in the, uh, is in the, the golden apple is in the bowl, to be repositioned in the light of what God might say to you. And I'm going to ask, I think we have a prayer team, a ministry team. Maybe as we worship, perhaps we'll put, you could go over there and uh, just, uh, just as, a, as a statement of intent, say, you know, I'd love to be prayed for. I'm nailing my colors to the mast today. I am saying I'm, I'm looking for that change of priorities. And then the final thing is this. It would be, it would be wrong having talked about Jesus being the saviour of the world, not to offer an opportunity. If, if you've never taken the step of embracing the saviour of the world, committing yourself to the saviour of the world, asking the saviour of the world to take his rightful place in your life. And tonight's an opportunity, an opportunity to say, you know what, today... I'm going to do that. I know I need it. Steve, you've talked about how it was for you, how you prayed that prayer. And because of that prayer of commitment to Jesus, everything changed. I'd like to pray a prayer like that tonight. Well, again, if that's for you, I'd really encourage you to take that place and be prayed with by the prayer team. Let's stand together, shall we? I'm going to pray for all of us, and then we're going to worship, and you can make your response. Let me ask you to do what might seem a strange thing, but sometimes it's good to do physical things which, which can manifest spiritual realities. I wonder if I could ask you to put your finger, your hands across your eyes. And as I pray, we are praying that God will help us to see things more clearly. Our eyes that are bombarded, our minds that are bombarded with so many images, so many lies, distortions of the truth. And so we're asking you, Lord, that you will come to us this evening by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said to them, what do you see? Jesus says to us this evening, open your eyes. What do you see? And we say to you, Jesus, we need your help to see things clearly, to see things as they really are. Would you come by the power of the Holy Spirit and break into our thinking? Help us to see things more clearly. 
Help us to see things as you see them. We ask it in the name of Jesus. And just as we, as we worship now, if, if you want to leave a water jug behind, this is a good time to do it. Reprioritization in the light of Jesus' challenge to you. And if you want to embrace the Savior of the world, this is a great evening to do it as well. So lead us in worship and let's make our response.